Welcome to the Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast, where the principles of person-centered care come alive. This month, a pharmacist joins Ann Garten for a discussion about COVID vaccines. Before we get started, we want to remind you of the importance of continuing to follow CDC and local health guidelines. You can find the latest COVID recommendations for your area by using the links in our episode notes. like to introduce Anthony Pudlow, the Vice President of Professional Affairs with the Iowa Pharmacy Association. Welcome, Anthony, and thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Ann. We're excited. I have been volunteering at our Rock Island Health uh, Public Health Department, giving, as I call it, my mom's from Ireland, so we call it the jab in Ireland, uh, but the COVID vaccine. And we're so excited because every time I, every week I go, I feel the hope and the excitement of the community members coming in and, and getting their vaccine. But we also know we have still lots of questions around that. So uh, Anthony's joined us to, to, to answer those for us. But we're going to start a little bit first with your profession. So person-centered care is only successful by including all within that interdisciplinary team, which pharmacists are a part of. So I'm wondering if you would share with your, our listeners a pharmacist's role as part of the care team for both the individual and the community. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, well, thanks again, Anne, and, and really appreciate the opportunity. Um, you're exactly right. Uh, pharmacists are a key member of the healthcare team wherever you find them. Um, I'd say most people are, are familiar with seeing a pharmacist um, through their interactions at maybe a local community-based pharmacy. But I think it's important to realize that pharmacists practice in many other healthcare settings as well. That can be in, in a hospital setting, in a research lab, critical care units, long-term care, um, whatever you might think of when you think of where a, an individual might be that's receiving medication. Um, pharmacists are, you know, they have extensive education um, at, at a baseline entry, but they are also certified in um, I think we're up to about 14 different healthcare specialties that can include geriatrics and cardiology, um, uh, oncology as well. So you go down this laundry list. But I think wherever you find them, um, pharmacists serve as the medication experts on the healthcare team and, and really play an active role in ensuring the appropriate and safe medication use in those individuals receiving them. So, yeah, like I said, I, I think patients see pharmacists also, though, probably more often than many other healthcare providers. Um, so, yes, that probably is leaning more towards those that you see in the community setting, your, your common community-based pharmacy. Um, and in those settings, you, you see pharmacists playing a huge role, not just in, in appropriate use of medication, but all around public health. And I think that's been very apparent through the, the course of the pandemic is working very directly with local public health departments to really serve the needs of the community. Um, and yes, I would say many uh, hospitals and, and other 
uh, and those that are prescribing medications, um, those infectious disease specialists are really been focused so much on those individuals with with active COVID-19 and trying to get them out of the hospital, keeping them safe and healthy and alive. But at the same time, I would say we see pharmacists playing a very important role in improving overall health and making sure that individuals continue to um, improve their health and well-being throughout this pandemic and not letting any of their other types of health conditions um, run rampant while COVID is taking its toll on the rest of the healthcare system. So that, that's probably in a nutshell how I might describe where you might see pharmacists, especially now um, in, in, in the course of the pandemic. I think you just answered my second question, right? So understanding how the pandemic has brought you guys to the forefront, uh, really, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and highlighting how important you are in public health and in overall health and wellness is, is really been brought forward by the pandemic, I think. Would you agree? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think so. And, and you can point to all the different roles that pharmacists, when you just reference COVID-19, what pharmacists are playing a role in. I mean, early on, we saw pharmacies um, being uh, a key component in, in active testing, diagnostic testing, or the antibody testing now. Um, we, we obviously are seeing pharmacists play an important role in the distribution and administration of vaccines. But I also think where individuals may not always see that pharmacists playing a key role is also those in our health system settings. So recognizing there's been treatments out there to at least help individuals that have active COVID-19. There's pharmacists that are actively involved with the healthcare team in, in our hospitals across the state in helping make it sure that individuals are getting the right dose, no, um, at the right dose at the right time, um, making sure that the most current information and literature that's available on some of these treatment options are being uh, used appropriately for those individuals that actually have active COVID-19 as well. So you can run your, your whole spectrum of where you see pharmacists playing a role, and I think that's only going to um, continue to evolve as, as the pandemic evolves. Indeed. I uh, have worked acute care and always loved my team members, the pharmacists. They, they were my resource for so many of our patients, and I can mm-hmm. certainly see that even more so now. So with the emergency authorization to put the vaccines on the fast track, how do you, how do you explain how it moved faster and were any steps skipped? Uh, and this is a this is a great question, and I'm I'm going to do my due diligence in trying to keep this less than uh, uh, two minutes or even three minutes, I guess, um, because there's individuals I can speak on uh, the FDA's authority to to um, approve products, devices, vaccines through the emergency use authorization for hours, um, but I think it's important, um, kind of first and foremost, is to recognize that this authority is there underneath the, the, the Food and Drug Administration. So the FDA, um, before any type of EUA, um, the emergency use authorization uh, can occur, there's a lot of different things that go into play um, to ensuring that um, there are certain criteria that are met that say we can make this happen. So um, whether, you know, we need to make sure that there's some sort of declaration of a serious life-threatening disease or condition happening, um, this product um, could be effective in diagnosing, treating, and preventing this specific condition. We have to understand that there's known and potential benefits that are weighing any um, known or potential risks as well. So, you know, there's set criteria to make sure that um, the FDA is, 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 is very focused on evaluating the information that's available to them. 
However, you're right, though. You know, the process um, was on a fast track. Um, and and, and I, I think the best way I always try to describe it, and I, I really do point people every now and then, if, if anybody is an avid um, reviewer of the New York Times, I believe it was in last April um, in 2020 that there was a great article that focused on how long will a vaccine really take to come to market. And they, they really put some great diagrams together that showcase the, the years. Um, really, it, it does take many years normally for a vaccine to come to market. And that's because of the, 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 the technology that goes into investigating how to develop the vaccine to the different phases in the clinical trials to ensure first and foremost in phase one that it's a safe medication or safe vaccine to be using in a healthy individual. And then in phase two, really trying to broaden that group and trying to get to the target uh, uh, question that we're trying to address um, to phase three and trying to make sure that we even scale that further to make sure it's, it's accomplishing what we want. So that's just the, the, the trying to understand piece, the, the research question, if you will, to the vaccine development. And then on the other end of it, normally you have this process of then the FDA, once a product, the vaccine or what have you is approved, then you have to scale the manufacturing of, of such products. And so there's this just this process that had to be condensed down. And, and this New York Times article I, I like because it shows how normally we're talking about a 10 or 15 year cycle for, for products to come to market is really having to be done in, you know, what are they, I think we're, we, we were at 16 or 17 months in that process. So there's a lot of overlay in that process. And I, I would actually call attention. I think in my opinion, it's, it's really, a, it puts a lot more money at risk. And I'll, I'll use that um, as, as one of the factors that we have to be aware of is that you're, these manufacturers are literally having to, to to develop all their manufacturing processes for scaling such large quantities of a vaccine and doing that as they're testing the vaccine in that process. So, you know, the, they, the, the, these manufacturers had to be very clear and specific to the FDA at key points in their, in their phases of their trials um, that they're moving and progressing and, and developing a, a safe vaccine, but at the same time, an effective vaccine. So a lot of money at risk, um, for sure. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure that patients, individuals, the population is not at risk because the FDA is still putting these manufacturers through the same rigor and safeguards that, that we have with clinical trial design. I think the other piece that's important to remind our listeners is the research itself is over 10 years old. You know, we, we didn't just start that in the last year either. So uh, I think that's a, an important piece. I wonder mm -hmm. if you would discuss briefly the three vaccines and their effectiveness and differences amongst them. <clears throat> Sure, sure. Um, so yes, at this <clears throat> excuse me, at this current time, we we have the three vaccines. So we have the Pfizer product that was developed in conjunction with a BioNTech, um, Moderna's vaccine, and then um, I'll, I'll probably just overall say it as Johnson and Johnson, but it, it is the division uh, Janssen um, that that really um, is that third vaccine that just came out. So I'll start with Pfizer's product. That was the first that came to market. Um, but there is some similarities with the Moderna product as well. So I'll, I'll kind of maybe try to draw some comparisons with both. Um, but the Pfizer and Moderna products are both uh, vaccines that are 
developed through a that has been dubbed as an mRNA type vaccine. Both vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, are two dose vaccines. Um, Pfizer's product is a a, a, a two-dose vaccine that you have to separate by 21 days is the minimum that we're looking at. Um, and Moderna's is a 28-day process in between um, vaccine doses. Uh, both vaccines, um, uh, I would say, um, uh, have a very high effective rate. You may have seen this in the media. Um, both, um, I would say, uh, Pfizer's vaccine has been reported upwards of 95% effective in preventing individuals um, with, with, with uh, preventing them from getting uh, COVID-19 without any type of previous infection. Um, Moderna's vaccine is about 94% effective. So um, in terms of individuals um, not getting COVID-19. Both vaccines, this has also been very, um, I think, apparent in the news too, is that they have very unique storage situations that um, I think have really added some of the uh, uh, complexities to the vaccine rollout in the state or across the country even. But um, we can get to that in a little bit if need be. But yes, that's primarily Pfizer's vaccine as well as Moderna's vaccine. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that's the most recent one that came to market. It's slightly different type of um, a development process. They they refer to it as a viral vector type vaccine versus the mRNA vaccines. But Johnson and Johnson's vaccine is a one shot um, vaccine. Um, so very similar to what you might say is like some of our other vaccines that are already on the market, not for COVID nineteen, but it's a one shot deal. Um, the effective rate is um, a little bit less than what you would say is reported from the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Johnson & Johnson has uh, been reported as a 66% effective rate in, in terms of preventing individuals without any type of infection before that. Um, but really what we see across the board with all three vaccines is a very, very high effective rate in preventing hospitalization, near 100%, if not 100% for individuals. So I always kind of describe to individuals that this is very similar to how we look at all vaccines. We're really trying to help individuals boost their immune system to really help prevent them from having very severe complications from um, such XYZ disease, right? And preventing them from getting hospitalized. So um, in a nutshell, those are kind of the three vaccines. The only probably other point that I would also raise as it relates to some of these effective rates that I was talking about is that all of these effective rates are assuming um, that are, are, are at that point at two weeks after that, that final dose, the first or final dose, I guess, with the, the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine. So it's very important to realize that your full protection to, to really abide by what we've seen with the clinical trials, you have to wait a full two weeks after your final your final dose of the vaccine. So for our listeners, that still means wearing your mask and doing all the other public health initiatives that we do to protect each other in, in as we travel through this pandemic, right? For sure, for sure. Now, I, I will say um, that the CDC has released some new guidance that if you are an individual that is fully vaccinated um, and you're gonna be interacting with others that are fully vaccinated, that you can be indoors with these other individuals without wearing masks, without being concerned about social distancing. So yes, you're still right. I, I still encourage everybody still, if you can, 
you know, there's a whole lot more time that's going to come into play until we get the, the rest of the United States vaccinated. So still do everything you can, wash your hands, cover your mouth if you're coughing, all those kind of safeguards to protect yourself and your loved ones. But CDC right now, as it relates to those that have been fully vaccinated, um, you have some leeway in there when you're maybe interacting with um, your family and friends um, indoors. So I know a lot of our community members are concerned about the vaccine and their um, signs and symptoms that they bring on after getting them. And so I don't mind sharing. After I got my uh, first dose, I got what is called COVID arm, which is a, it's, it's a side effect. It is not anything that's going to damage my arm or anything of that nature. Um, and some of these are things that we see similarly with, with the different vaccines. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about that and how how people can manage manage them. And I think this is important. You know, we're hearing some school systems trying to inoculate their entire staff, you know, all at once. And then they're having to close school down in two days because people aren't feeling so well, things like that. So I wonder if you share a little bit about that. Yeah, Ann, um, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, what you're talking about is is a really natural type response to a vaccine. And, and, and this when, when we always talk about common adverse events or effects from a vaccine, um, these responses are very common um, when we're talking about some of our other uh, vaccines that are also delivered in, in the muscle or intramuscular vaccines, similar to, say, a flu shot or pneumonia shot. But, yeah, with the COVID-19 vaccines, we do see um, your very common injection site type responses. So um, pain, swelling, maybe a little redness. Um, and that's, again, our very common responses that we're seeing. Now, if it's becoming anything worse, that is definitely outside of, of uh, what we would say is common um, for uh, an injection site uh, reaction. And that needs to re be reported back to your whoever provided to you your, your vaccine. Um, at the same time, we do still see um, broader uh, responses as well that maybe are more systematic in nature. So um, fever is still common. Um, we know there's fatigue, headache, and chills that can occur. And, and these are situations that um, can be resolved with some over-the-counter medications like ibuprofen or uh, Tylenol or acetaminophen. Um, I would put the small caveat, the CDC does not want individuals taking that beforehand. Um, we really want only that to be used if, um, if it's decided afterward, um, after you receive the vaccine, that those types of um, reactions and, and responses are happening that would warrant that over-the-counter medication use. But really, those are the biggest things that we've seen. Now, I, I would also just call attention, you know, the FDA and CDC has both put out um, strong recommendations to vaccine providers to be very aware of individuals that may be um, that may have other types of reactions in general, um, uh, if you want to call it allergic type reactions, to always be very well aware of these responses that individuals are having. So with any vaccine, you really should be waiting around for at least 15 minutes. We, we never know, especially since these are uh, new vaccines, how an, in, how an individual is going to respond. Could they be um, could they have a severe type of allergic reaction to some of these other uh, inactive ingredients that are used in vaccines? So always everybody should be waiting 15 minutes. However, though, the, the CDC is still recommending to, to wait longer. If you're a type of individual that 
um, has other types of responses to other medications, or if you are prone to um, a lot of different, say, seasonal react, uh, seasonal um, uh, allergies or other types of responses to medications. So that's something that you should be sure when you go through the screening form and consent form that you're signing when you get a COVID-19 vaccine to be very clear that, hey, you may have to wait at least 30 minutes after respond or after receiving the vaccine to make sure that you're not going to have uh, a really severe reaction. And, and whoever is providing your, your COVID-19 vaccine has the, the necessary tools there to help you um, to respond and, and help you through that process if that were ever to occur. But those situations are very, very few and far between, um, but they still happen, and they happen with any type of vaccine that we're always, um, as a vaccinator, we're always aware of. Indeed, and I would also suggest this is the person-centered part, right? So if you have any of those questions, to have that discussion with your provider before you go to the um, vaccine clinics, because uh, those of us who are giving the vaccine won't know all of your health history. Your provider knows that. So that's a really important discussion to have. And then to also be honest with us so we can assess you after you get your vaccine and make sure that things are, go are going well. So I, I really want our listeners to understand and that piece is it's it's a team effort, um, and mm -hmm. and and it's a personal effort. You know, we do want to get people as as many people as we can vaccinated, but we also want to do so safely. Mm -hmm. and on that yeah. note, oops, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, oh, yeah, I actually I feel like you're probably going to ask this question too, um, but I do know with some of our other populations um, that we're working on or, or helping to ensure that there's um, safety data behind this. You know, we know that the, the FDA and CDC is still working to conduct clinical trials for um, individuals that are um, at a, a childbearing age or pregnant at the time, or even individuals that are under 18 as well. So, you know, right now it is, um, I, I would kind of use your same words, it's a, it's a shared decision that you will have with your provider. But I do know the, the FDA and CDC at this point are still encouraging, at least when we talk about um, pregnancy right now, that right now we know the vaccines, how they work in the body, it's unlikely to pose a threat in pregnancy, um, but there is still very limited data available on the safety. So it is still something that if, if it is of concern to you, really, really, I encourage you, have that conversation between you and your doctor, your prescriber, um, and, and verify that you, your, your benefits are going to be outweighing any potential risks for you. So, um, and right now with individuals under 18, as we reference the three different vaccines, it's important to know the Pfizer vaccine is approved for individuals um, 16 years and older, the Moderna and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are approved for 18 years and older. Um, but the last data and last news that I've been um, following on this population, I think um, both Pfizer and Moderna are in the process of, process of enrolling uh, children 12 years and older in a study um, to, to really try to see if we can start getting down to some of our teenagers um, to get vaccinated as well. But I think right now, the latest I've read is that we're probably not going to expect to see any kind of data on that until probably the summer months, um, maybe later in the summer. So it is one of those things to continue to monitor for um, and verify when, when maybe um, a teenager might be eligible. Indeed. 
I wonder if we touch base a little bit on on the um, upcoming months and how we're getting the vaccine out to our community members and, and what you're seeing there as we're moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, another another conversation that I think we can spend hours talking about. Um, but, uh, you know, it's been interesting, I'd say, in my observation, too, in my role is, you know, we, we have a lot of a, a lot of happening at the national level, right? We have the White House involved. We have the CDC, the FDA um, involved in making sure the vaccines are developed and, and distributed across the country. But at the very same time, the states and the state public health department plays an essential role in how vaccines are allocated. So I call attention to that difference because there really is two processes in how vaccines get um, allocated down to the local community level. Um, primarily, I would say it's a very localized approach. So the state receives specific allocations from the federal government, and at the state level, they can determine how many get sent to each local public health department. And it's then at the local public health department, their decision on which vaccine providers in your community will have access to this. So, for example, it's been a big role that the association at, uh, that IPA has played in helping educate pharmacists on that process. There's been uh, an enrollment process to show that these pharmacies are approved um, to, to administer the vaccine. They'll follow the guidelines set out by the CDC. They have the necessary storage conditions for the vaccines, and that allows them to get state-based allocations. At the same time, there's been federally allocated doses through different federal pharmacy programs as well. Um, probably the two that have been most prominent out there is one that was targeted towards our long-term care population, um, which was in that initial phase rollout within, within the initial phase, phase 1A. And that was our long-term care residents and the staff that work in those facilities. And what the federal government deployed was a federal long-term care pharmacy partnership that utilized CVS and Walgreens primarily as the two national chains to go into these long-term care facilities. There are a few other groups that, that were able to assist in, in Iowa and even across the country, but primarily you'll see, you've seen news around CVS and Walgreens doing that. At the same time, um, the, the federal government has worked with some of the national pharmacy uh, chains as well to deploy what they've called the Federal Retail Pharmacy Partnership. So these pharmacies are also getting federally direct federal allocations um, through through a through this partnership at the national level. In 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 Iowa, um, there's two initial groups selected. One was High V, as well as a, a group of pharmacies underneath the banner of CPESN Iowa, um, which CPESN stands for Community Pharmacy Enhanced Services Network. So this is a network of about 100 pharmacies that provide different level of services that I would say most pharmacies um, are very familiar to many, many of you in the community. These are many times your locally owned pharmacies um, that go underneath a lot of different names. But so I would say initially, yes, we've seen in Iowa, those two groups received federal allocations. In some of our neighboring states, I know in Wisconsin and Illinois, Walgreens was the primary group that were receiving federally allocated doses that way. I call attention again one more time to these because 
the federal allocated doses are actually above and beyond what the state's getting. So the fact that we have these national pharmacy groups actually receiving doses that actually helps bring in more vaccine to the entire state on top of what the state's getting allocated. So, um, so there's that, and, and not to confuse matters more, but if you're a, a veteran, the, the VA system has gotten their own allocation. If you're talking the uh, Indian Health Service, they get different allocations. So depending on the setting, there's been some different areas. But overall, um, what I would say is that we have seen in the state of Iowa over 500 community-based pharmacies that have agreed to provide the vaccine. Um, at some point in, in the vaccine rollout. It doesn't mean that over all these 500 plus pharmacies have received the vaccines at this point, but many of them have, um, but many of them also haven't gotten the, the, the amount of vaccine that I say that community needs, nor has that local public health department got what they need either. So we're still at this very critical point where there's not, there's too much demand and not enough supply. So in a nutshell, I would say that's how the vaccine logistics have gone out. Um, but what I would also just encourage individuals, I think right now everybody's just itching to, to get vaccine. And, and the state, and, and really following the CDC's guidance, there's been different phases. I was kind of alluding to this earlier, but there's been different phases. So we knew some of those at-risk populations were the first to receive it. Now, at least in Iowa, um, we're at a point where that, that at-risk population has expanded even more um, to individuals all the way down to eight, 18 years and older with different types of chronic health conditions that are recognized by the CDC that basically are recognized for putting people at risk for getting hospitalized if they were ever to contract COVID-19. So we're at this point where I would say we have more than a million people that are now qualified in the state of Iowa to receive vaccine, but we just don't have supply. So we still have seen the state of Iowa use websites like vaccinateiowa.gov, or there's also like vaccinefinder.org that have been resources put out to help individuals find vaccine and get scheduled for an appointment if you can. Um, the state's also deployed 211 to assist individuals that don't have access to a computer or the internet um, to call and, and really get placed into some um, pharmacies as well with vaccine. So there's a little a bit of everything right now as we try to get vaccine to all of those at-risk populations right now. Indeed. I think in the Quad Cities here, I can share some um, things with our, our listeners uh, to look at our local public health departments, their websites, uh, Rock Island and uh, Scott County. Genesis patients, they're getting uh, put into their system currently. Maine and Locust is working hard at delivering the uh, vaccine and, and has some clinics up and running. And I know that um, Community Health Clinic just got some recognition by the state of Illinois to get working in our uh, populations who are at most at risk, right? So um, feel free or for our listeners to, to look at those websites and, and see how to sign up would, would be a great tool. Anthony, we could talk for hours, I think, on this. So I, I think we really have covered the, the crust of, of what our listeners really want to he hear. And unless you have anything, just burning desire to share with them before we, we say goodbye. Oh, wow. Um, you're right. We could talk for hours. Um, and I still feel like we haven't talked about everything yet either. Um, you know, I'd say uh, through through our work at the association and our collaboration with, with the state public health department, 
Um, uh, it is a team effort, and and I think it's not just that a team effort at at the state level. Um, it's a team effort at the local level, and I I I am so proud of of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians stepping up and collaborating across. Uh, if you will, party lines or, or, or the, the four walls of their pharmacy to work with local public health, to work with other vaccine providers. We've been seeing larger scale um, vaccine clinics occurring across the state to just get vaccine out there to everybody that needs it. And, you know, I think those stories are only going to continue um, as as the pandemic. Um, hopefully we get through it, but really as the vaccine, um, uh, uh, the vaccines get out there more and, and more quantity. So I, I, for those um, healthcare workers that are listening, um, I, I applaud all of you on the front lines for everything you're doing day in and day out. Um, but I also want to applaud all of those in the community and, and, and what you're doing to, to be there for each other, um, be there for your family, be there for your friends. The, the past year has been such a trying year in so many ways. Um, we're going to get through this, and I, I think just continue to to exercise patience um, as we get more vaccine out there in, in the community. Um, and as we talked about, you know, still using all those safeguards to protect yourself from from COVID-19. Wash your hands, cover your mouth, wear a mask when you wear and when you can. Um, social distance, um, and, and we're going to get through this um, this pandemic soon enough. Indeed. Thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us and sharing your great amount of knowledge and and your support at your level. Uh, We couldn't do it without our pharmacy friends. And uh, as as you said, it is truly a team effort community-wise and healthcare provider-wise. So thanks again for sharing. Thanks so much, Ann. The Institute for Person-Centered Care podcast is produced at KALA-FM Studios in Davenport, Iowa. This show is engineered by Dave Baker and produced by Ann Garten, Director of the Institute for Person-Centered Care and Nursing Faculty at St. Ambrose University. You can learn more about the Institute for Person-Centered Care by visiting us online or connecting with us on Facebook or Twitter.